0: question. Sure. How sure. long is this going to take? It shouldn't take a whole lot longer. Do you think I can get there before 129? Uh, probably not. Uh, What's at 129? Well, I have a project doing something.
1: the story of the wrongful conviction of Brendan Dassey. Over the next seven episodes, we re-examine and explore the influences at the heart of this profound miscarriage of justice. Welcome to The Sixth Hour. I've spent hours, days at a time, buried under the weight of the wrongful conviction of a Mishkot High special ed student who had gone to school on February the 27th, 2006 as an innocent 16-year-old kid, only to be catapulted into adulthood at the hands of local law enforcement when he left as a suspect in one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminal investigations. This miscarriage of justice is Brendan's story.
0: Brendan Dassey, D-A-S-S-E-Y.
2: Morning, Brendan. Morning. How old are you, Brendan? Seventeen. Where were you living on October 31, 2005?
0: With my mom. Who all lived in that general area? Me, my family, Steven, Chucky, my grandma and grandpa.
2: Now you said that stephen that's your uncle? Yes. And he lived where exactly in relation to your house? Next door. But how far from your house?
0: A few hundred. 100 or 200 or 300 yards away.
2: Yards or feet, do you know the difference between the two?
0: Not really. Okay.
2: Was it farther than a football field away from you? No. Okay, so less than a football field away from you.
1: Yeah. Did you know that Brennan Dassey was in special ed, but participated in some regular classes for some of his school day? but not because he was capable of doing regular work, but that it was required by federal law. But then again, there's a lot about Brendan Dassey that people don't know, particularly people in 2006. It's not to ask why, but how did Brendan Dassey falsely confess to a crime he didn't commit? Did he propel himself into a life sentence as a random act of self-destruction? I think not. What we do know is that 16-year-old Brendan was inherently vulnerable to highly coercive interrogation tactics. And as the Seventh Circuit in their floor totality analysis tells us, Brendan was not subjected to physical force. He wasn't restrained or handcuffed. There was no hectoring or raised voices. And the interrogation tapes show us the only physical interaction was the slimy caress of Uyghur's clammy hands on Brendan's legs and back. So what happened? Despite the judicial ignorance of both state and federal courts, the underlying psychology of who Brendan was was critical to assessing the totality of his circumstances. Why, even the Miranda Court over 54 years ago acknowledged that a subtle psychological approach can be inherently coercive. But the Miranda Court could not have foreseen Uyghur and Fassbender, or the circumvention of federal judges such as Hamilton. But the answers were to be found, in school records, easily accessible through the case files, as Professor Michelle Levine and Dr. Sally Miles would discover. Brendan had been forgotten, sprawled between the pages of IEPs, acting as blueprints, if you will, for Brendan's disabilities. But for the investigators, who would plough through the March 1st interrogation, battering Brendan with disfluent passages, choppy utterances and ill-fitting metaphors, it did not matter, as their infinite questioning cared little for Brendan's disabilities. In October 2019, Brendan's legal advocates filed a petition for executive clemency with Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers, requesting... The governor's consideration of either a pardon or commutation of sentence, on the grounds of both Brennan's innocence and the extreme length of his sentence, among those advocates was Professor Michelle Levine, a distinguished clinical professor of law, a leader in the laws named by the Wisconsin Law Journal, and a director of a public defender project. Professor Levine collaborated with Dr. Sally Miles, a speech language pathologist, to co-author. Under the Hood, Brendan Dassey, Language Impairments and Judicial Ignorance. It's a powerhouse analysis exploring the relationship between oral language competency and Brendan Dassey's experience in the interrogation room. Professor Levine joins me on this sixth hour to peel back the layers of Brendan Dassey's disabilities, disabilities that would contribute to his giving a false confession, and disabilities that not only law enforcement but the courts would struggle to understand, or even acknowledge. In the words of Professor Levine and Dr Miles, this interview would have been a challenge for anybody, but what this interview would have done to Brendan is beyond imagining. (laughs) Welcome to The Sixth Hour, Professor Levine. Thank you for your time. You've had a rich 40-plus years as a public defender, law professor, and in the last 10 years, you've been researching and writing in the areas of language impairments and their effect on the quality of justice affected individuals receive. What inspired you to take that particular roadmap?
3: Well, going to law school, I mean, we're going way back. Let me put it this way. Jimmy Carter was president when I was going to law <laughs> When I was going to law school, and you know, I certainly knew I wanted to work with with clients, and I did a clinic and started as a public defender, and uh, I mean, just did a public defender clinic, and I was hooked, and I've been hooked for the rest of my life, really. Um, I was a public defender in Wisconsin, and then got lucky that I got a job that allowed me to combine my interest in practicing law in criminal defense and teaching, and got to do that then. Actually, the research comes up out of work that started as a public defender when I was representing some deaf parents in a termination of parental rights. And I looked and saw that I said, this due process is not working here, that these people were being railroaded. They didn't understand what was what was happening to them. Um, nobody was able to meet their needs. Sure, people were well-intentioned and wanted to do the right thing, but we had no clue what these people actually needed. And so as time went on, I started, I, de- I dealt more as a public defender and then at a law school with deaf cases, cases with deaf individuals, criminal cases, and realized, wow, we are missing something. So I actually, the, my first law review article was 17 years ago. It was on deafness. And it's quite connected to what we're talking about today in that what gets deaf people isn't really that they can't hear. There's, there's a lack of exposure to language. If you are born deaf in a hearing family, you don't have immediate access to the communication that's going on. And so you don't have access to language. And so Mm -hmm. very often what they have is a lack of language and a lack of fund of knowledge. Following that, I actually was just following that track. And we have a, institution here called Mendota Juvenile Treatment Center, which takes kids that were that were in juvenile corrections and says, let's see if we can give you some treatment to see if we can deal with some of the problems. These were kids who really had big problems at corrections. The way the staff put it is they bombed out in juvenile corrections. And when I say corrections, what I basically mean is a juvenile prison. Mm-hmm. One of the things they noticed, I actually had talked to the director and said, well, you might want to find out if they, how, they, how their hearing is, because what I knew is that hearing loss was actually pretty common in, um, in correctional institutions, more common than we think. And I said, well, check that out. And they came back, and I met with them, and they said, well, their hearing's fine, but, and they had a speech language pathologist there, and they said, we, we, ran, the, we ran some measures on maybe a quarter of the kids. And these kids were like the bottom first percentile. Of ability to process language, understand language, use language as sort of as a, as a tool for effective communication. I thought, well, what is this? Okay, Now, bear in mind, at the point I'm finding this out, I'd been a lawyer for you know, coming on 30 years, and I thought I was a pretty good lawyer, frankly. And I'm going. I have never heard of this. So I thought, well, I'll start doing a little research. And <laughs> wow, wow. When I realized, I discovered, you know, I discovered some of Pam Snow's stuff. From First of all, most of the good research is not in the United States. It's in Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Canada. Canada's a big spot. And I said, look at this. These are our clients with these deficits, these these shortcomings in the ability to use language in a meaningful way. And honestly, I was floored. And of course, I asked the obvious question of, why don't we know this? So I wrote the first law review article saying, you know, attention lawyers, look at this. And, you know, everybody, people I know who are, you know, some of the best lawyers around going, oh, my God, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So it just, I tracked, I wrote the second article about what happens when a client with a language impairment, you know, what happens with the lawyer? We know a lot happens with the lawyer. And that led just naturally to, to Brendan. And so it's been... It's been quite, quite a journey. I mean, it's not like I was a, a linguistics major in college. It's not like I had any particular interest. It was sort of I fell into it via some of my cases as a public defender and it just, it grew until now. Here we are.
1: Yeah. One of the statements in the analysis, you write that it's an unusual feature of this project that it pairs a law professor with a speech-language pathologist. A profession not commonly seen or well understood in the criminal or juvenile justice system. So how did the collaboration between yourself and, and Dr. Miles come to pass?
3: Well, you know, it comes to pass in sort of a, you know, because we both live on the east side of Madison, actually. But I like to tell the story that the way she and I first met is my little dog attacked her big dog. We were later talking at a neighbor's party, and, you know, I'd seen her around. I knew her name was Sally. I don't think I even knew her last name. And she knew my name was Michelle and that I had a mean little dog. <laughs> <laughs> and she was just saying, "Well, oh, what's going on? Well, it just happened that I was going to Edinburgh and Belfast to talk about the research involving language impairments because there... So in in Belfast the legal profession was really interested in doing something about this, and in Edinburgh there was some attempt to get some legislation through to deal with this, and they wanted some some of the information. Like I said, that you know the, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, they're much they're far 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 ahead of the United States on it. Well, when I told her, I just said this is what I'm doing, and it's on language impairments, blah blah blah, and she looked at me and she said you do know I'm a, a speech-language pathologist. And I said, I did not know that. <laughs> and over time, you know, we'd talk and we became friends. A couple of times we had dinner and we'd, we'd talk about it. I gave her a I think at that point, I know the, the first article on language impairments was out. I don't know if the second one was out yet or not. And so we'd occasionally talk about it. Well, along comes making a murderer. And I'm watching it. Now, let me say this. Sally Miles would no more watch making a murderer on her own than I would watch a zombie movie. It's just not, that's just not what she's, what she's, what she does, but I'm watching it. And I, uh, called her and I said, would you be willing to take a look at, I think it was episode three where he was being interviewed. And, and, I mean, let me explain to you what this is. Let me explain to you, you know, the setup. Yeah. And, few days later, she called back. She was so appalled at what she had seen. She ended up watching the whole thing, the whole series. And then she went online and found the the entire interviews. She she couldn't get over what she had seen. And so it sort of emerged. She comes about and she says, well, you know, we could, there are these things called, you know, we could do discourse analysis and we could actually take a, a really close look at what this is and we could start to see because she kept going back saying, well, yes, Brendan has a, a language impairment, no doubt. She was looking at not only the structure of what he was saying, but his be, the behavioral cues that she could not get over what the police were doing. She couldn't get over it. And I kept saying, well, they're using the read technique. She said, that's not a technique. You, this cannot be a technique. I said, no, it's a technique. That's no technique. That can't possibly be a technique. No, it's a technique. Yeah, and it took off. I happened to have some research money and there it was. And it just, it just happened. That's honestly how it happened. Yeah. So I guess we can start with my dog.
1: And I think there must be a sense of almost empowerment that you can be so moved by something and so outraged by something that you're able to channel your expertise into doing something about it.
3: Well, I mean, that, yes, you know, that's, that's certainly very satisfying. I mean, you know, I've been a lawyer a long time, so I'm outraged a lot. It was, you know, when she was outraged. Yeah. I mean, she, she was almost speechless. A few times she just said, I, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. I can't believe what I am watching. And, and she was not talking about Brendan. She's seen plenty of people like Brendan. Yeah. It was the police that just left her flabbergasted. And it, yeah, it is empowering. It's the, well, we we can do this thing in sort of that way where things take on their own life. I mean, we we got the analysis done and we started working it and I did a couple presentations on it. And it was just, you know, moving along and we kept saying, yeah, we really should write this because I'm not going to lie to you. Writing a law review article is not anybody's idea of a good time. <laughs> And the summer, right before this thing was published, I got an email from the editors at Albany. I, I mean, I did this, this was, they were basically a cold call saying, we put out this issue called miscarriages of justice. Do you have anything you'd like to contribute? And I talked to them and, you know, and talked to Sally. And this was probably July. The thing was not written. We did have the data and we had slides done to show the data, but nothing was written. And if we could get it done by December 31st, you know, it was ours. And we just we did it. It It's like I said, it's it almost took on a life of its own. If you believe in fate, there we were.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. It offers great insight into how language was weaponized against Brendan and vulnerable juveniles. And how it intersects with Brendan's challenges and and limitations. What was the catalyst for you on focusing on Brendan's story?
3: I mean, it's interesting. What was done to him was, of course, really, it, you know, I, I mean, we're running out of adjectives of how bad it was. What they what they did to him. But I knew that he wasn't unique. That that while his his language scores. They're certainly, they're certainly quite poor. He's not alone in the system. And the truth is, kids like that are exploited in the criminal justice system all the time. So, you know, the the, the catalyst was twofold. It was, you know, well, I'm gonna, we're gonna talk about this because nobody would ever really said, I mean, I'm watching Making a Murderer and I'm looking through the transcript saying, my God, nobody's talking about this. Mm. So I wanted to talk about it in terms of Brendan and I wanted to talk about it in terms of all the other thousands of people that come through there because there's a whole lot of Brendans out there.
1: Yeah. Despite the many evaluations Brendan had been subjected to, the IEPs, the Goodjunson suggestibility scale, it's not until one reads your discourse that Brendan's disability truly becomes apparent. Mm-hmm. People watched the interrogations. They watched Making a Murderer. They felt a sense of outrage. They felt a sense that something's not right here. And we could tell that Brendan has limitations. But what were they? Right. right. For so many people watching the interrogations, it was like, why is he saying that? Why is he falsely confessing? Yes. Yes.
3: And, and I, I mean, and that was interesting because understand, I mean, we knew about this kid's disability. From records that were in the court file, you know, a bunch, a couple of professionals, unconnected professionals in Madison, Wisconsin, aren't going to get at somebody's school records from Mishicot, Wisconsin. But they were sitting in the court file; they were right there. Yeah. So the records were there; they had access to it. Nobody knew what it meant. They looked at the numbers. They they had some numbers. You know, his, one of his trial lawyers knew he had communications difficulties, but nobody knew. Well, how do they play themselves out and what do they mean in this context? Yeah. And I think that was, that's something that was, that was hard for me yeah. to realize that my fellow lawyers had screwed up royally.
1: I think it's in one of the IEPs that it actually says that he can't process idioms as an example. Really? And then we jump to the seventh circuit and, you know, they're talking about Brendan's understanding of idioms and it's, it's been there. It's been there from the very beginning.
3: Yes. Right. And they and they knew it and and sort of they knew it as a fact, but it's like, well, what does this mean? What does it what does this mean? And and did you know, did the police use figurative speech? Yeah, well, yes, they certainly did. They're not particularly artful. These are not these two law enforcement people that were questioning him are not the most articulate individuals I've ever encountered. Um, And that's something that Sally talked about a lot but there's all kinds of, there's there's figures of speech there's inferences there's you know allusions to something and half half thoughts and that and somebody with a quote unquote normal language ability might be able to patch it together and figure out what they're talking about you don't have that you are not going to know what these people are talking about
1: just getting back to the analysis for a moment how did it become part of the clemency push once
3: uh, the draft was You know, I sent it over and I, you know, I sent it over to Steve and Laura and said, So, you know, this is coming. Now, they, you know, I had given them, you know, they they hadn't seen it as it was coming up, but I had told them it was coming. You know, I mean, that's just basically professional courtesy. So, you know, I'm talking about your client here. And so uh, we sent it over there to them and they felt that, you know, certainly Sally's ability to, to, to see exactly where brendan was to understand his to understand his his impairment to understand the nature of it coupled with the kind of quantitative analysis you know the numbers are shocking there's no two ways around it and so that's you know they they came up here and I think I signed an affidavit because they, they, had, they had seen it as it was, I mean, the draft I sent them is essentially what was published. There was a, were really no changes that went in. And we signed an affidavit and they said, you know, this is exactly that kind of specific concrete information that would have been, that was really helpful.
1: Yeah. Before we take a deep dive into the analysis, can you give an overarching perspective of the impact speech and language impairments? Have on juveniles like Brendan who are navigating the criminal justice system perhaps for the first time?
3: Ooh, all right. Well, understand. And, and this would also, frankly, also apply to adults as well. Juveniles are, you know, juveniles lack a, a lot of experience, but understand the, the justice system by its language, by its nature, is language based. That's all we've got. We don't do interpretive dance, we don't take blood tests. We, you know, <laughs> It's words. That's all we do. Yeah. That's all we do. And so you start with encountering the police. Now, yes, there are issues of force involving the police. But for somebody like Brendan, when we're dealing with an interrogation, what is an interrogation? Questions and answers. It's language, right? Yeah. Well, then we come in and then now you're dealing with a lawyer. Well, what is it that I do? My client and I talk. That's all we do. That's what that's what happens. I mean, there's other things I might be doing. I'm going to do some research, and I might get records, and I might with this. But in terms of what that client's relationship with me, it is entirely language based. Does the client know what I'm what I do? Does the client uh, you know is the client able to give me what I need? Well, how does the client give me what I need? They talk. And they have to understand what I, what I need. They have to understand what I mean. So it isn't just giving information; it's the ability to understand. Well, what does she want? What does she want from me? And so we start with that. Can the client understand their their choices? How, how do they even know what their choices are? I tell them. And if I'm any good, I tell them in, you know in a reasonably you know accessible way. But it's, it's tough to do. How do I find out, how do I know what happened here? They have to tell me and they have to know what I'm trying to, what I'm looking for. Then we go into court, what happens in there? They talk. we talk about their rights. Well, what are their rights? I mean, I, you know, the rights are all very abstract. And of course the ability to access them means the ability to understand what they are. And in terms of, if we're talking about, you know, following directions, what are directions? compliance the world famous compliance compliance is following directions and directions are we know what verbal based mm. all the way through If you're on probation you have a bunch of rules that you have to follow you know i thought about this when um i was seeing something that a that a lawyer had sent to a, to a client and it's it's the way um he initiates kind of the relationship he sends a questionnaire and it starts with well tell me about yourself it's like do you realize how much information that, what that client would have to know to even know what you're asking? You know what? I I, I like video games. What, what are you asking me? Yeah. And so it's, you can see it from start to finish. This is a language based environment. If the client testifies, can they answer those questions? It's a, it's a, it's a terrible form. You have, you know, and it, can they withstand, Brendan Dassey could not withstand cross-examination. Never in a million years should that have been allowed to happen to that child.
1: Yeah. It's very difficult to watch.
3: Yeah. I mean, that, that's insane. That's insane. Where was the protective order for him? Where was anybody understanding he can't do this because it's language-based. It's all language-based. Everything we do everything we do, all the way through whatever the disposition or sentence is. Because you got to follow orders. You got to participate in treatment. You've got to be able to, you know, meet expectations. And how do we do them? We do them with language. It's entirely verbal based.
1: And when you're watching the interrogation, something that struck me that's never sort of struck me before is when Brendan first walks in on the March 1st interrogation. And he's walking into the room with, Uyghur and Fassbender, there's a sense that Brendan's okay. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about him that signals that he feels uncomfortable or that he may be in a dangerous situation. Yeah. That's so tragic. He didn't have yeah. any idea of what he was about to face or even comprehend what he had previously been subjected to, both in cribbets but obviously more recently february the 27th when there's three three interrogations of that young man and he walks in because he thinks he's doing the right thing that lack of comprehension struck me watching him walk in seemingly without a care in the world yeah you know
3: i mean he was in danger you know they they read him his rights so, you know in ways that were i mean i have to i have to tell you i did a presentation on this for a linguistic symposium at University of Wisconsin, and it's interdisciplinary. It's people from speech language and German linguistics, and you know, and they're all. And I said, and I'm going to end with the talking about the Miranda warnings here, and you can see they're all like, well, we know the Miranda warnings. I said, watch this, and I ran them, and then I put them up there, and I, you know, I said, you tell me, did that kid understand those things? You know those the, the Miranda warnings are a signal that something bad is about to happen. I, I mean, they you talk; they could well have been doing interpretive dance for all that kid knew. So right, he didn't know. He certainly didn't know that police could lie. Now a lot of people don't know that, but he really didn't know it. I mean, it never would have dawned on him that the police would lie. And this is a kid who came in uh, grew up in the Avery family, where he ought to have known.
1: There was certainly that lack of understanding, that lack of awareness of the situation that he found himself in. So concerning to watch. Yes. Now, in the analysis, I use your word, there are many breathtaking moments. I love that word. And (laughs) among them is the sheer weight of the stats. Yes. Yourself and Dr. Miles' document, if you have a look online and you have a look at the takeaways that a lot of people, particularly who support Brendan, have honed in on, these would be the main stats that the investigators use a total of 18,325 words to Brendan's 6,998, making Brendan's contribution a mere 28%. This obviously leans into the narrative being constructed and guided by the investigators. Right,
3: right. Although it's a pretty messy narrative that, I mean, actually... um... One of the dissents in the Anbank decision said, you know, well, you, you know, you picked out bits and pieces here. I mean, who knows if you actually ran the entire narrative, who knows what they were saying happened, but they, they managed, they somehow in, in all this verbiage managed to find enough to put something together.
1: I mean, they ask 1,525 questions, which is equal to 6.68 questions per minute which equated to one question every nine to 10 seconds, that is torturous. That would be torturous for anyone, let alone a juvenile on their own with speech and language impairments. Why do you think they conducted themselves in that way?
3: Well, you know, I certainly think some of this is read technique. I mean, they're told that, you know, you take control of this and you do more of the talking. But I also think this wasn't very good read technique in that I don't know these two individuals at all, other than what I've seen. They seemed over eager. They were awfully eager and they were so excited. They were utterly undisciplined. They they were not prepared. You know, there, were, there, there was no prep of, you know, how should we get this? It was almost as if it was stream of consciousness for them. So you'd see them, you know, ask one question and then attached to it was another question and then another question. And they may or may not have anything to do with each other.
1: And I think that begins with something that you had pointed out to me before when Fassbender is talking about the dots. <laughs> yes, the
3: famous dots. Yes. You know, it's like, what are you even talking about? Do you even know it is truly, I mean, that's, and that's something that Sally picked up uh, is how un, utterly undisciplined these two were. That, that if in the middle of it, uh, well, you can't decide, I know let's call it dot. One of the great things about working with Sally has been for me to really sort of adjust my perspective. Cause I look at that and I can fill in and say, Oh yeah, I know what he's talking about. All right most people don't. That would be, that would actually be difficult for a whole lot of people to understand, but certainly somebody like Brendan, you know, and I, and I think I was doing, what judges are doing was, well, I know what he meant. It might not have been the smoothest way, but I know what he meant, except that for somebody like Brendan, it becomes, it becomes gobbledygook. And so that's how we get to the, well, first of all, I mean, one of the things that's fascinating, we've had a chance for two days now to look at what you said, and listen to the two tapes a little and stuff like that. Well, she said, stuff like what? All right, he nods. I mean, Brendan's going to nod to anything. If you look back through here, the, I mean, the number of nods, he, was, he really would have nodded, did you kill Abraham Lincoln? Yes, I did, nod. And we say, well, you know, Brendan gave us, honestly gave us this information, this information, and that information. Maybe I'll call them dots or whatever. What are the dots? <laughs> what? What are you talking about? And then he goes on. And some of the dots, when we look at it, say, well, I think we need some matching up here, just a little tightening up or something. What in the Sam Hill are you even talking about? And that's just the most extreme. She's the one who saw that.
0: Brenda, I want you to to relax, okay? Um, A little more comfortable here and stuff, and... What we liked we had a couple days since we last talked now, which was Monday, and you had a chance to reflect and breathe, I imagine. Just and Yeah, to kind of we um the only one I got. I got more. In here. Okay. And uh I kinda of call it it's a sense debriefing in a way, you know, just let you talk to us a little and um, and, and we've had also a chance for two days now to look at what you said and, and listen to the to tapes a little and stuff like that and you know we look at that and we say well you know Brendan gave us honestly gave us this information this information that information maybe I'll call them dots or whatever and some of the dots when we look at it say well I think we need some matching up here, just a little tightening up or something. We, we feel that that maybe, I think Mark and I both feel that maybe there's some, some more that you could tell us uh, that you may have held back for whatever reasons. And I don't want to assure you that Mark and I both are in your corner, we're on your side.
1: There's no doubt the interrogation technique it was inherently coercive. And I think it's interesting, but, again, tragic is a word I use a lot when when speaking about Brendan. To note that the questionable interview by county detectives up in Marinette in Krivets contains 540 mm-hmm. questions, empty eight-minute period. Mm-hmm. That's not an interview. That's a hammering.
3: You know, and she made the point, so I made the really good point is that that is the standard throughout all of these, meaning that that ownership of the narrative, that, or that, you know, who does the most talking, that it was, that it was intentional. That it wasn't somebody who's just, you know, on a jag, had too much coffee, whatever. That this is, you know, this is what they believe is good interviewing technique. The problem is that the way this was done, one, yes, they're asking more questions, but it really is an undisciplined, unstructured
1: mess. Yeah, I've listened to the interrogation in Crivets many times and I spoke recently with Dave Thompson in regards to that interrogation. And, you know, the noticeable shift that happens around the 20 minute mark. I believe it's Detective O'Neill really goes for it with Brenda, flat out denying his narrative and then you see again it's heartbreaking you see how compliant brendan becomes to the the barrage of questions you know it's almost like Mm -hmm. he's got it down pat now so let's let's just get him to reiterate this i find that particularly confronting because we see it play out it's it's very obvious it's very transparent
3: yeah Yes, this is, I mean, that, and and so when I would say it's a technique, it it means it's intentional. Somebody, they, you know, they had their learning that says, this is what you do. You do
1: the talking. In one of my previous conversations, I had thought that Brendan functioned to add an eight to 11 year old, but I, I do stand corrected. The analysis documents that Brendan's overall impairment level was in the most severe range, and that at 16, tests showed that he was functioning like a much younger child. Yes. In the range from five years to 11 years. Mm-hmm. This feels like an abusive situation when factoring in Brendan's overall impairments and at the level that he was functioning.
3: Yes. Well, it is. I mean, of course, they say they didn't know. Well, that's madness they say they didn't know and that they didn't prep. And, and that's of course, number one, if you're, you know, if you're going to interview anybody, you certainly um, find out who it is you're going to interview because you still have to start to understand what are some of the issues that I've got to be ready to deal with here. They go and they get him at school. So they already start with any, leave everything else out. They know he's 16. They know that for a fact. And then they, they they just say, we didn't know he seemed fine to us. Well, then they are complete stones.
1: yeah, I don't believe that for a minute. I, I don't believe that no
3: no, no, they're going but they're going to pretend, and I think they deliberately didn't find out. They deliberately didn't find out. I have no doubt his mother at least said, well, Brendan's slow. I mean, she was willing to tell anybody and everybody but and and then if you look at the at the trial, Weeger testifies, well, I, he, it didn't seem anything wrong with him. I mean he you know, he, he answered the questions and he takes driver oh he's in regular classes, which of course is like, oh my god, that's special ed law one oh one. But he's in driver's ed. Oh well, all right, then everything's fine.
1: He knows how to reverse park. He obviously is going to understand how to navigate the criminal justice system.
3: Right, right. You know, all you had to do was, was ask and their excuse, well, we don't always have time. They had plenty of time. This was in February and March. There was no
1: rush. There was no rush for this. When you hear Brendan, you know instinctively that Brendan has challenges. Yes. For those investigators to have bypassed any knowledge of that yes. is very disingenuous.
3: Uh, completely. I mean, well, no, it's an out-and-out lie.
0: It's a closet and it's a dresser. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else? And did but... The gun holder thing was, like, right here on the wall. Okay. Why do you label that? Gun rack, maybe, or? How do you spell rack? R-A-C-K. Okay. Anything else?
3: You can't tell me that they didn't know. If If they didn't know the specifics, they at least would have known, you know, something. Yes. And, you know, and they're talking, well, he's a mainstream student. I think on some, they, they knew somewhere he was special ed. Well, what does that even mean? I don't think these guys even know. And, you know, they didn't care. They didn't no, care. No, 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 no. And I think that's, you know, I mean, Steve Drizzen can talk more about read technique. They don't care. You make it a point to not know and you make it a point to not care.
1: When you hear the investigators talking to Brenton, and I reference the March 1st interrogation with this comment when you hear them and i think it's judge wood from the seventh circuit who talks about their lulling approach it's very insidious the way that they talk to brendan yeah. to extract information it's uncomfortable to watch and it's not just uncomfortable because of brendan's obvious challenges in the interrogation room it is uncomfortable to watch two adults do that to a juvenile. Well, I'll tell you what, in another context,
3: it's called grooming a kid. Yeah. Who are we kidding? You know, I think it was, um, I don't remember which judge it was. In your argument said that their conduct made her skin crawl.
1: That's Judge Wood.
3: It was just, ugh. It made their skin crawl. It was disgusting. It was this smarmy, unctuous. We're your, fa- we were here like your father, your friend, and they're touching him. Oh, they're touching him. Yes. And um, and it was just, you know, who are we kidding here? And everybody's saying, well, they was just, they were just making him comfortable. That you know, they, please, please, we are how. How this got through, I have no
1: idea. Yeah. Through your research, what finding has had the most impact on you? What of Brendan Dassey has stayed with you?
3: You know, the thing that sort of, that I I suppose in the end shook me to my core was the Seventh Circuit in their utter willingness to suspend common sense, to suspend disbelief, to do anything to uphold this kid's conviction. And so that that is speaking as a lawyer, that we are so cruel, where we so pretend to care so deeply about the rule of law, that we let this go through, that somewhere there wasn't a responsible adult saying, that's enough, that is enough. This one shook me to my core in my belief about is justice ever possible. You know, the, that decision was really, that was tough. That was one of the hard, uh, interestingly, that was one of the hardest parts to read. I, you know, I, I, I listened to the arguments and read through their stuff and I'd have to, I'd get up and I'd just pace around and I, and I was just sort of, I'm I shallow breathing because I'm just, yeah just you, you know, I won't tell you exactly what I was saying. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you've got to be kidding it it was it's the utter cruelty yes the utter separation from life as we know it to be to uphold a conviction how sickening and you get so actually it it almost has nothing to do with brendan himself it even has nothing to do with these cops it has to do with the Seventh Circuit, and it has to do with with Judge Hamilton, who was an Obama appointee. So that's you know that's you know you, you want to know where, where where I really lost it? It was there. Yeah. The other place, the other thing, of course, I mean you know, and Kaczynski just make, makes me crazy.
1: Yes, he does. I not mean, he has that effect.
3: Yes. He just makes me completely crazy. I just look at that. And, and he's still at it, you know, yeah. he's still talking, you know, he's still throwing this kid under the bus. It, it, the incompetence of counsel, you know, trial counsel, they were pretty disappointing. I mean, they won't overtly, I, I I don't know what to make of Len Kaczynski. So, you know, the, the other part is I, I I struggle with, wow, this kid was done wrong. By his very own lawyers, the people who were supposed to look out for him, who couldn't even be
1: bothered. Kaczynski was not interested. Oh. When you look at the the footage of Kaczynski before he's even met Brendan, oh. he's met with with media. I think it's at least ten to eleven times.
3: Oh, he was out there just talking and talking about please and talking about how evil this is and what the motivation was. Like you've never even met this kid. Yeah. Yeah, what are you doing?
1: Yeah, was Kaczynski active in two thousand and six? Did you see that living in Wisconsin?
3: I'd heard of Len Kaczynski. I, I'm going to be honest with you: Len Kaczynski did not have a great reputation going into this back then. Yeah, we certainly knew what was what was happening. As time, you know, I didn't pay super attention. I mean, I certainly we certainly knew about the case. Uh, but I was more aware of Avery, actually, because of the Wisconsin Innocence Project. But as time went on, words started to come out about what had actually happened, and what this lawyer was doing, and how long he was allowed to go. I mean, I'll tell you, there, there, there's a bit in making a murder; it's tiny, and for me, it shows how, just how dreadful we are, which is. Brendan first asked to get rid of Kaczynski, he went in and asked, and he was trying to, the judge says, well, you have to tell me why you want another lawyer. And meanwhile, Kaczynski's fighting. Mm. The the correct answer for Kaczynski is, if he doesn't want me, we need to get a divorce. That's the right answer, the ethical answer. That's what a good lawyer does. But instead, he's fighting him saying, well, it's his mother, and I'm fighting for him. and And the judge says to him, well, I need you to tell me why. And all Brendan could yeah. say is, "I'm guilty," and the judge says, "Well, that's certainly not good enough. I'm not going. I'm going to deny this." And I thought, "Son of a bitch!" Yeah, he can't tell you. He can't tell you why. And you are making him stay with this quote-unquote lawyer, who's you know continued to try to sell him out. And, you know, and I struggle because I think there's a lot of there's a there's blood on a lot of hands out there. This everybody knew how bad Len Kaczynski was and the judge. But the judge pushed this through. It was allowed to go through, allowed to go through until finally it was so bad that even this judge had to say, well, all right. OK, so, you know, I, again, now that was those were those were tough. I mean, Len Kaczynski is just. Uh, God.
1: <laughs> yes. What do,
3: you say? what do you even say about that?
2: Are you requesting that your current counsel be replaced by someone else? Yeah. Mr. Kaczynski, do you believe that this request is his free and unfettered choice? Uh, I'm unsure about that, Your Honor. I have uh, received information that there has been an ongoing campaign by Mr. Dassey's co-defendant to uh, encourage him to obtain new counsel that might be more to his co-defendant's liking. Mr. Dassey, how do you get along with Mr. Kaczynski? Not bad. Does not bad mean good or what? Yeah. Do you guys fight when you're together? No. Can you talk with him? Yeah. Do you think he's doing what he believes to be in your best interest? Sort of. Tell me why you want to change lawyers at this point.
0: I think: Yeah, he, no, he, I think he thinks I'm guilty.
2: And that's the reason that you, you want to get a different lawyer. Yeah. I don't see or hear anything that tells me that there is an irreconcilable conflict or difference. Uh, I, there certainly isn't, uh, I, I don't believe any breakdown complete or otherwise in communication. Accordingly, I'm going to uh, deny Mr. Dassey's motion to substitute someone for um, Mr. Kaczynski as his counsel.
1: You know, as a layperson with a very limited understanding of the ineffective assistance of counsel, and I know that Judge Duffin, for example, references, you know, how egregious his representation was, but again, he's hand-strung by the argument that's put forward. It's so obvious that he's pimping Brandon to the prosecution. Oh, and the press.
3: Let us not forget the press. Yes. He's pimping his own client to the press because he couldn't, he, you know, he couldn't wait to be on Nancy Grace and wherever the hell else he was. Oh, God. Sorry. You can tell I start to swear a lot when I get
1: <laughs> <laughs> Something we have in common, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> I think of this particular quote when he's talking, about, he's talking to the media because he wants to get a message through to Brendan's family. Yeah. Really? Like, yeah. is that serious? Who believes
3: that? Who believes that? I'm talking to them because I want to get it through to the family, <laughs> but I can't bother talking to this child. Oh my God.
1: And I can't mm. pick up a phone and talk directly to his mother. I'm going to do it through the the news, Nancy, through
3: Nancy Grace. I'll talk to
1: him through Nancy Grace. Yeah. Uh, it's comical, but it's it's horrendous. Yeah, yeah. No,
3: it's uh, whoo-wee, That's more, you know, my my fire. I mean, Judge Hamilton's more just, you know, where where I just go into an existential breakdown.
1: Yeah. With the on banc split 4-3, do you think yeah. that that speaks directly to the judicial ignorance in the title of the analysis? Oh, sure. Yes.
3: Yeah. Now, some of it was deliberate. They, they didn't know. But, you know, again, it, some of it goes to we don't know. They really, there's nothing much in there. If you look at the opinion that says, they, they talk about, well, he's got, you know, intellectual limitations. Well, what does that mean? What exactly does that mean? Nobody ever really gets into what does this mean? Well, it actually had a very specific meaning for that kid. Yeah. Um, You know, and if you look back at the trial, they get into, you know, Ken Kratz. you, You know, listen, this was quite the cast of characters on this thing.
1: Oh, it certainly was. Oh, God. Uh,
3: Ken Kratz, you know, asking a bunch of questions about how he did in, in, in the um, in the IQ tests, in the math, you know, some of the math subtests he scored, you know, in the 100 range. And so, therefore, it's fine. It's like, well, and math had a lot to do with this.
1: Well, that's exactly right. I think the courts and the prosecution play around so much with Brendan's IQ number to try and support their case against him.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You know, but even the jury figured, well, he was, you know, he was slow. They figured out that jury figured it out. They just figured, you know, that, you know, that he did it and and that he was lying. His testimony was, of course, a disaster. No surprise. No surprise. You know, he couldn't withstand a traditional cross-examination. He wouldn't have understood what it was about. And when he kept saying, I don't know, I don't know, it's because he doesn't have the words. Yeah. He doesn't have it. And so then later, when Judge Fox turns around and says, well, people didn't believe him, they said he didn't know. No, he didn't know. He couldn't, he couldn't access the words because for Brendan Dassey, those don't exist. Yeah. I don't know was probably the truest thing anybody said in any of that.
1: Yeah. And if he was unable to withstand interrogations. What? there was no chance of a cross examination Cross examination
3: with that questioning form. You know, I mean, I was thinking, you know, in real life, what would you do? You'd be going in, you know, and again, this is something that is starting to happen in Australia, New Zealand, and the UK, where you're starting to get protective orders that say, mm, yeah, we can't, you know, you can't question him in the traditional way. We're going to we're going to protect him and we're going to start. You, you can't do it. I mean, that happens. So if I'm cross-examining a child, the judge isn't going to let me cross-examine a, child, a five-year-old the way that I would be cross-examining a 25-year-old. They're not going to. Well, that's what should have happened here and the jury should have been told he can't answer those kind of questions. This question form doesn't work for him at all.
1: There was very little jury instruction on Brendan and his, his disabilities and on who Brendan was. I mean, the defense that was, that was mounted, didn't really tap in, even to the false confession?
3: No. No, I mean, they sort of did, but they didn't really want to get into it. I,
1: I don't know. You know, I mean. It... There was no, no substance. There was nothing that oh. was educational for the jury. No. What they walked in with, they came out with. There was nothing right. that they learned. Right. You
3: know, they, they, they had their. Their sense that something was wrong, yeah, but it never was explored, and nobody really knew and you know, and they were they didn't want to get way into what what made it go because then I don't know, they try to discourage us from um Monday morning quarterbacking other lawyers, but man, this was bad, yeah, this was bad, 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 the trial was bad the the pretrial representation was worse, it was just bad
1: mm. Brendan's statement was obviously filled with contradictions, Mm -hmm. physical impossibilities, as you write, and this is supported by the absence of any DNA or forensic evidence linking Brendan to any crime, anywhere. So where does the fault lie? Do you think it's incompetent law enforcement and techniques or the courts for not correcting where the system failed?
3: Well, you know, you can start with the cops, but, you know, one of my favourite lines is, we get the police we want. Where are the courts? Where are the courts saying, yeah, no, this isn't good enough? You know, um, why are we allowing this kind of interrogation technique to even come in? Brenda was convicted of a sex offense committed supposedly by Stephen Avery, except Stephen Avery wasn't convicted of it. Where is this? Where are we getting to? Let's talk about how life actually operates. It's as if we don't want to know. Because if we start to look at how we do business, then we have to question everything we do. And that we're just, it doesn't seem to be the will to be doing that right now.
1: Yeah. How do we reach lawyers and judges with this knowledge? How how do we equip and educate people on how to recognize speech language impairments that vulnerable people bring to the interrogation room?
3: you know, again, I'm going to go back to the to UK, Australia, New Zealand. I mean, there's there, there's actually a, a systemic approach and starting to say, you know, we're going to start to bring in intermediaries that this is, they've got in, you know, with the legislature or that the representatives, they're starting to, to recognize that it's really important. You know, we're, we're still really slow at this, you know, I mean, we still, you know, we still go by our gut. We're still deciding, I can tell. Yeah. We're, we're not, we don't do well with expert testimony, particularly expert testimony that in any way supports the defense. We've got a belief, I can tell, I know when I see it. And that's a tough one to, to blast out. You know, lawyers, when I present on this, lawyers are, a lot of lawyers are very interested in it. You know, they're, they're willing to say, I, you know, I'd like to learn something new prosecutors are just you know not so interested and judges still we still have that yeah i can tell they understand quality to to it it's going to take a very long time it's going to take a long time and you saw it look you know the seventh circuit on bonk you know those are some fancy those are some fancy judges up there and they're going oh i could tell we could tell
1: look fine to me he was on a comfortable couch that's so disconcerting Oh god, yes, it is.
3: Yeah, but there it's 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 kind of that we go by our gut. We make a lot of decisions based on our gut.
1: And that's where the read technique is given credence.
3: Yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. Steve Drizzen calls it, you know, they become human lie detectors. I could tell in my gut. I mean, in this case, I think it was Weakert who's testified, yes, we are a lot we can tell when somebody's telling the truth and when they're not. Are you kidding me? The lawyer should have been on the table burning the courtroom down. No, you can't. And you're never allowed to say that. That's madness. We can tell. No. No, you can't. So, no, I just, I, I, it causes me to mutter. You know, I start thinking about this and I just get going back again. I mean, honestly, what, truly one of the hardest things in general writing about this is like I come into something and I'd be so mad and I'd have to sort of work it through and then okay now I can sit down and write again.
1: It has it certainly has that effect I mean there's so many aspects to to Brendan's experience at the hands of the so-called justice system in Wisconsin that are disturbing and Mm -hmm. hard to leave behind you know it's hard to leave it behind because it's just so wrong. Yes yeah 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 you know and again we
3: just we really just suspend disbelief like nothing I've ever seen. I mean and you can go to you know Miranda when they said well he was read as Miranda writes and he understood them. Oh my
1: God. He at no Mm -hmm. point says that he understands them. They don't try to explain it.
3: Oh no they just read it to him and he says do you understand him and he goes "Mm mm-hmm and then so then they say uh well he was read them and he understood them. You have got to be kidding but you know that's another place we you know we just ignore common sense everywhere i mean you'll see judges say well he's got an iq of 59 so he should be able to understand miranda <laughs>
1: yeah
4: we
3: just
1: we're absurd we're 13 years on from from brendan's trial and if only he had the team he has now oh right yes mhm yes they were armed with information like under the hood. It would be hard to see how any jury would convict.
3: Right. Right. You know, and even even with Ken Kratz prosecuting, I think even the jury.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, for some reason, I just don't think that that type of prosecutor would, would go down so well now. No. No. No.
3: No, no, certainly not up against, you know, sure, you know, he could, and he and Tom Fallon, I mean, Tom Fallon knew better than to sit there and say, innocent people don't confess to things they didn't do. Again, where were the lawyers leaping on the table, basically, you know, calling down, you know, thunder and lightning, which is what should have happened then. You know, I mean, I, I think the prosecution exploited a weak defense.
1: Yeah. And Fallon says that with so much conviction at the oh, end.
3: Oh, yeah, you please. Yeah. Really, you know
1: better than this. <laughs> yes. A fair amount of drama went into that statement.
3: Yeah, they don't. Oh, mm-hmm. actually, they do, but never mind. Never you mind, I guess. never That never, you know, it was just the whole thing. It was just start to finish,
1: start to finish in Chicago. Yeah. Sadly, so close in Chicago.
3: Oh, and it, really, and it is, wow! It is that sense that wow, there's, there's nothing here that can make it right. We don't even know how to make it right. We're so, it, it, you know, it, to me, it called in to question the, the legitimacy of the entire system. I've been a lawyer over forty years, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking this system's kind of illegitimate, actually.
1: It was almost as if. The judges that were uh, that formed the majority opinion in the unbunked decision—it's almost as if EDPA was a convenient barrier mm-hmm. for them, yeah—to yeah. not have to answer the questions that were put to them, right? Yeah, I, we don't have to answer them.
3: We don't have to look at this. We don't. We don't have to because we, we've got this, you know, crazy statute. Thank you, Bill Clinton. Um, that you know, it has as much to do with preventing justice as anything.
1: We're coming to the end, so thank you so much. If you could initiate or drive legislation concerning language impairments in the interrogation room, particularly when we're talking about Brendan as it lands on learning disabled juveniles, what would you focus on and why? Why?
3: I actually don't think they should be allowed to, well, they certainly shouldn't be allowed to interrogate a juvenile without a parent, but forget a parent without a lawyer. You shouldn't be allowed to interrogate a juvenile. Certainly, if you have information, there's special ed, and you better find out first. None of this, we're going to pretend we don't know. Go find out. Uh, You know, some of the more simple things, you can't lie to a kid, plain and simple. Can't lie to him. You know, so there's some pretty simple things that they could do. You know, they're not going to want a lawyer in there because, you know, as a lawyer, my job is to tell my kid, don't talk. (laughs) That's my job. But, you know, we can start with something as simple as you can't lie to them. And you need to find out, you need to find out their education status. You got to find out. And then, you know, Australia does it, New Zealand does it, UK does it. You got to have a communication. Uh, basically, an intermediary in there because somebody would have said to these guys, "Stop! This is a this is a verbal mess. Ask one question and stop talking." But they certainly weren't interested, and we've got miles to go before somebody finally says this technique has got to stop. Of course, they shouldn't be allowed to use read technique with kids. That's monstrous that they are, but here we
1: are. Yeah. And if you could leave listeners with a thought as it relates to Brendan's fight for clemency, what would that be?
3: Well, you know, as as crabby as I can get and as cynical as I can get, you know what? Don't give up. Don't give up. Never say never. You know, you don't know. You don't know how things are going to, how things are going to turn out. And you have to just keep fighting. You just do.
1: Absolutely. There's no giving up.
3: No, that's that's not an option. That's that's just that's not an option. And because if you do, you know what? I think his trial lawyers gave up. Yes. And you see where that landed.
4: and use spoken language was in the bottom percentile. At 16, he still struggled to comprehend spoken sentences that were only 10 to 12 words long. Over the course of two interviews, the officers asked Brendan more than 1,500 questions, and that is 1,500 questions. That number averaged out to six to seven questions per minute for more than three hours. Throughout the interviews, the officer spoke in a rambling, incoherent, disorganized way that confused even our professional transcriber. She had difficulty telling where one sentence ended and another began. We concluded that Brendan would have been cognitively overwhelmed by this extraordinary amount and quality of language, and he would have said anything to bring questioning to an end. As can be seen in the videos, Brendan was extremely compliant. He acquiesced to almost everything the policeman said. The final confession was directed by the officers, their, their questions and their comments it simply could not be considered to have originated with Brendan. Mm